Thanks for checking out this message from Radiant Life Church. Grab your Bible, a pad of paper, and a pen. Let's dive in. Happy Easter to all of you. Happy Easter to those watching online. I have no idea what just happened. When I saw, I think it was you, Pam, dump that pile of candy, I turned to my wife and said, they're not throwing all that out there, are they? Well, I hope that was some fun for you this morning. I will say you have been the absolute rowdiest bunch of all three services, for sure. (laughs) And then I love that you're proud of that also, right? I love it. Well, what's interesting about what uh, Pastor Josh and Pam did was that in reality, none of us are correct on whether you like peep or jelly bean, whether you prefer a sort of chocolate over the other, or whatever peanut butter chocolate combination you like the best. In reality, none of us were correct, because everything that they did was a matter of opinion. It was a matter of what? Opinion. Opinion. It's your opinion. So the other person isn't wrong, it's just they have an opinion. What is a fact, though, about what just transpired is it was crazy, but they were throwing candy at you. That's a matter of fact. It's a matter of what? A fact. Where are we going? We're going somewhere, so let's go there. We live in a world of opinions, don't we? All sorts of opinions are out there. How to do your family. All sorts of opinions on what's right and wrong. There's all sorts of opinions on how you get to heaven. When the truth of the matter, the fact of the matter is Jesus said there is one way and it's through him. That's a matter of fact. It's a matter of what? Fact. John 14, 6. John, a disciple of Jesus, probably the youngest disciple records this, an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus. He records this for you and I. These are Jesus' words where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making a statement that you think that there may be all sorts of opinions on how to get to the Father and one day get to heaven, but I'm going to tell you it's only through me, Jesus. Here's what's really cool about this statement. Before they were named Christians in the book of Acts, eventually um, followers of Jesus would eventually get the name Christians, which means little Christ-like. Eventually that happens in the book of Acts. But before then, Christians were known as the way. Why? Right here. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. They were known as people of the way. Can I just say this? In a world today that is lost, broken, and is so confused, I hope Christians are known as the way of Jesus. That you and I represent Jesus so well that the world would look on our lives as Christians and go, that is the way to Jesus. What they are doing is the way to Jesus. Amen? Because we reflect him. The essence of Easter is this, the essence of Easter is that Jesus made a way to the Father. It's the essence of this holiday. It's the essence of Resurrection Sunday. That now the bridge has been built 
back to, the, back to God because sin broke it. And Jesus had to come to atone for our sins, die on the cross, and three days later, defeated death. But how exactly is this accomplished? How exactly is Jesus actually the way to the Father? In a world of opinions, you need to know this morning, Jesus alone is the only way. So, let's leave all the chocolate behind. Everyone say, aww. And let's get to the teaching. Everyone say, ah. All right, this is why we're here. Hey, uh, if you got your Bible, you got your tablet, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you turn into your Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way through. You enter into what's known as the New Testament, and immediately you get four gospel writers. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four write about the gospel, which means the good news of Jesus Christ. John is the fourth gospel writer. John is the last gospel writer. John was, again, a disciple of Jesus Christ, eyewitness account to all of this. And he has our letter. We probably believe John was the last gospel of the four to be written. So John, chapter 20, if you're there in your Bible or your tablet, say word, and it'll be on the screen. We get into the word till the word gets into... Ooh, I love it. John 20, verse 1. Let's begin. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Stop there. We're automatically introduced to a character in the story, Mary. Mary Magdalene was a woman possessed by demons that Jesus delivered and set free. She goes to the tomb. The tomb is in a garden. It's known as the garden tomb. She gets there early in the morning. And what does she notice immediately? that the stone had been removed from the tomb. According to Matthew, the very first gospel that we have in order, Matthew was a tax collector, and Jesus came to him at his booth and said, come and follow me. Matthew left everything behind to come follow after Jesus, and we have his uh, gospel letter called Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 66 says that the Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb, and they put a seal around the stone. Like, this stone wasn't just rolled and the tomb shut. They sealed this bad boy shut. It was sealed, sealed. And when she gets there, she notices the stone was removed from the tomb. Not just removed, the seal had been broken. There is something different as Mary's getting to this tomb. Verse 2. So she went running to Simon Peter And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, do you know who that is? It's John, right? First of all, how cool is it? John says, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. Listen to this. Jesus loves you too. What a title. Of course, Jesus loved all the disciples, right? Of course, he loved them all. And he loves you too. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. I'm gonna, hey, 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 that is not just for kids' ministry. That's for adult ministry, too. You need to know Jesus loves you. You need to know it deep in your heart that Jesus Christ loves you. And as you look in the mirror and you can't stand certain things, Jesus still loves you. And we got to hold on to that truth. So Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, this is what Mary says to them, 
They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. What is she thinking? Someone took the body, right? And she says, they've taken him. I don't know where they have put him. What is Mary not thinking? She's not thinking that Jesus is alive. She's thinking the body is somewhere. And I want to know where the body is. There's this whole scene that's getting crazy now. Mary was just supposed to go to the tomb and maybe visit the tomb and put spices in Jesus' body to give him the proper burial in the ancient world because they had to hurry up because it was Passover and they had to rush Jesus' burial. And he's in the garden tomb. Then it continues. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. Verse 4. The two were running together. (laughs) I love this. But the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. (laughs) Thank you, John. We know you're faster than Peter. (laughs) Right? Side note, we think Peter's probably the oldest disciple. We know that he's married because Jesus goes to Peter's house and he has and heals his mother-in-law. Right? So we know Peter probably is the oldest. He's married. John's probably the youngest. What do we know? Young men outrun old men. Okay. (laughs) Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Immediately, details. Details matter in God's word. They're giving us details. She's expected someone took the body. And here's what's amazing in this moment. But the details John's writing with tells us something else. In ancient grave robbery, what would happen is you would go to the body and hurry up and throw all the grave clothes off and grab the body and do something or grab the treasures that are in the tomb. But what does John write us and tell us? There's something that's just different. There's something here that is different that's happening. This is the other disciple, uh, or the linen cloths, they're folded up in a separate place by itself. If it was a grave robbery, these clothes would be everywhere. But a piece of linen is folded up separate. Something is different. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary, (laughs) what a character in a good sense, not like we use that term derogatory. I don't mean it like that. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. What is she still expecting? A grave robbery, right? I mean, now she's talking to two angels. She talked to Simon and John, says, I don't know where they've put him. They've taken his body. Now she's talking to two angels, says, someone took him. I don't know where they put him. 
I mean, two angels. Mary, something's different. (laughs) Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know it was Jesus. Now, some uh, biblical scholars will say, why would that be? I mean, here's a guy that she ended up following who delivered her from demonic oppression. Why would that be? Well, two significant things are probably happening. Number one big thing is when you and I cry, you know it's hard to see sometimes through the tears, right? Your eyes get watery, you cry, and it's very difficult to see through that. So perhaps it says she's crying. Perhaps that's some of the blurred vision. It also could be that Jesus is now in his, is in his resurrected, glorified body. That it looks different than his earthly body he had. There's something different about his resurrected, glory body. And so here she sits there and goes, uh, she stands, to, ooh, 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 ooh. She turned around. What is she looking at? What's she looking at? What was she looking at first? The tomb. She realizes she doesn't realize it yet. But Jesus is right there. She can't see him. She doesn't know in the moment it's not Jesus. Listen, I want to ask you, what are your eyes looking at? Are your eyes looking at your circumstances or are they looking at Jesus? Some of you need to start turning around and start looking at Jesus with your eyes. And stop looking on the circumstances of your life. Whoo! I'm preaching this morning. What you looking at? And then look in verse 15. Look how Jesus responds. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the what, friends? The gardener. Isn't that interesting? I mean, she's the only one there right now, unless the angels have already gone there in the tomb. But she turns around. Remember what time of day it is? It's still early and dark. Who gets to a garden early? The gardener. The one that needs to till the soil, to prune, to get the garden looking beautiful so when the sun comes up and people come to the garden, it looks beautiful. Go figure she thinks it's a gardener. She definitely doesn't think it's Jesus because she's been telling Simon Peter and John and the angels, listen, they've taken a body and I don't know where they've put him. And then she replies to the gardener that she thinks is the gardener, sir... She turns to Jesus and says, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll take him away. I wonder if Jesus is like, oh boy, Mary, like, dude, I didn't carry myself away. I'm right here, right? Yeah. So she turns to Simon Peter and says, they've taken him, turns to the angels, they've taken him, turns to Jesus and says, where, they've taken him. They've taken his body. Where have you put him? I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... Mary. And notice the next two words, turning around. I thought she was already turned to Jesus. You know what that indicates? She must have turned back and looked at the tomb. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not your circumstances. There's grief inside the tomb, but there's grace standing right outside of it. And know in your life, you may be going through a season of grief, but it's time to turn your eyes back on grace and knowing Jesus is there with you. And turning around, 
she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So you have this situation that she can't see clearly that this is Jesus and thinks he's the what? The gardener. The gardener, because they're in the garden where the tomb is. Huh. You know another garden story? Let me take you back to the beginning. Because God is awesome how he ties all this together. Back at the beginning in Genesis, God creates the Garden of Eden, puts man in it, does all his creation, puts man in it, and they get to walk with God every day. They're walking with God. It's beautiful. It's perfect shalom. In the ancient world, uh, even today in Israel, you'll be greeted with the word shalom. Shalom means not just peace as you and I take it. It means wholeness. What is the wholeness of? The wholeness is of four parts. You now have wholeness of yourself and your relationship with God. You have wholeness with one another. You have wholeness with yourself, not living into the flesh and the sin, but you have wholeness of yourself. You know your true identity, and you have wholeness with the broken creation. So when, it, when you hear the word shalom, it means wholeness and peace of those four relationships. And so in the Garden of Eden, it was perfect shalom. Everything was as God intended it to be. And he puts Adam and Eve in the middle and says, hey, it's all yours, except one thing. Don't eat from that tree in the middle, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But everything else is yours. And then there's a serpent there. And the serpent comes up to Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it says this. And he, referring to the serpent, said to Eve, the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What is the serpent, the devil, doing in this moment? Absolutely deceiving and tricking her. He's still doing it today. And some of us need to start turning the deception into truth. Stop listening to the lies and the deceit until it go back to the pit of hell where it came from and grab a hold of God's truth in our life. And he says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And it said that Eve turned to the tree and the fruit looked pleasing to her eye. And she ate it. But who was right there next to her? Adam. At any moment, Adam could have stopped her, but he didn't. He's right there in the mix of sin too. Right there. And all of a sudden, they both eat, and sin now enters the perfect garden of Eden. And because sin now has crept into the world, comes death. Because sin and death are linked together. And now sin's here, death's here, and Adam and Eve go, uh-oh, let's hide. We've never felt this shame before. It was not an emotion that they had ever experienced until sin entered the world. And all of a sudden, now they're hiding. And God comes in the midst of the day, and he asks a question. This question is not a physical question. God is all-knowing. He knows right where Adam and Eve are. But he goes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, and he goes and says, Adam, he says, so the Lord called out to the man, Adam, and said, where are you? Where are you? 
It's a question of your heart condition. Adam, you now know what it's like, don't you? That we were once in the garden in perfect shalom, and there's been a ripping of the heart. There is now a break in our relationship. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? And now sin has come in to the Garden of Eden. I think we live in a culture today that waters down sin, friends. Culture waters it down. I think we as Christians, we do it loving and gently. We do it with grace and truth. Grace and truth, grace and truth. But we gotta call sin, sin. You know why? Sin is bad and God hates sin and he can't be around it. Can we just start calling it sin? Stop saying, I made a mistake. No, you sinned. Remember, sin just means to miss the mark. You miss the mark that God has for you. Romans 6, 23, uh, as Paul writes to the churches in Rome, he says this, the house churches in Rome, for the wages of sin is what, friends? But the gift of God is eternal life in who? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise God for that last sentence. I don't like the first part, the wages of sin is death. Oh, I don't want death. But there's a solution. The gift of of eternal life is through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sin and death are linked. And it happened in the Garden of Eden. Romans 3.23 says, uh, for all, for how many? We all. Not just the person you don't like, how you're a sinner. We all have sinned, and here's the result. We fall short of the glory of God. Pastor Josh, come up on stage. I'm gonna give you an illustration. Teens, don't um, do this at home. Okay? Um, Okay. So, he's not going to get a big head when I say this, okay? He's going to be, he's going to walk out of these doors with humility at the end of the service, okay? I am you and I, I'm man. Pastor Josh is God. (laughs) And it says, when you and I sin, we fall short of his glory. Of whose glory? God's glory, right? (laughs) And sin is like doing this every time. Every time we sin, it's like turning to God and going. Right? Every time we sin, I love you, God. Sorry. I I, I worship you on Sunday, but come Monday night, sorry. And you know now what we do? We go, ow, that sin hurt my hand. And we turn the sin inwardly. And we've never go back and says, well, what about you, God? It actually hurt you. It's your standard, not mine. And every time you and I sin, we turn it inwardly and go, oh, no, that hurt me. I think when we sin, we ought to come back to God and say, God, I'm so sorry, and fall on our knees and say, I fell short of your glory. Can we thank Pastor Josh for getting slapped? Okay, so next time I asked for volunteers. I asked if I could slap him before all the services, by the way, okay? All right, I laughed because he actually told me before I came up, he told me, you can slap me harder. And I was like, oh, I can't, man, I can't. I, and praise God, he was willing to sacrifice his face for you to hear the noise. I couldn't, no, I, <laughs> he did it. 
I said, the problem is, it may hurt you. It's going to hurt me more, though. I can't slap you, man. But that's what it's like. We turn sin inwardly. But it affects him. That's how ugly sin is. It's so ugly in John 2, 2. This is what had to happen. He himself, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but the, those of the entire world. Sin is so bad that God had to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and me. That is how ugly sin is. And go figure. Mary is at the garden tomb thinking the gardener is there. Because all of creation started in a garden in perfect shalom and wholeness. So go figure that the garden is the place where the world betrayed God, making the garden a fitting place for it to be overturned. Making it back right. Redeeming the original sin in broken Eden and restoring it all and redeeming it back in the garden. Go figure. She thinks he's the gardener. Go figure. And God, I wonder if God had a smile. Heavenly Father is just smiling going, man, do you see how I put those two stories together? Listen, all the tombs in Jerusalem, you're saying it just so happened to be in a garden? This one? Jesus could have been buried anywhere. But Joseph of Aramaeth, Nicodemus, they buried him there. In a garden tomb. Come on, God's awesome, isn't he? There's some Bible nerding right there of how God works. It's awesome. And all Jesus had to say in the garden, Mary, Mary, turning around, she said to him in Arabic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then he says this, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Can you blame Mary for not wanting to cling to Jesus, Right? Three times she turned to the, uh, Peter and John, they've taken him, turned to the angels, they've taken him, turned to Jesus, but she didn't realize it was Jesus, thinks he's the gardener, says, they've taken him, where have you put him? Go figure, when she realizes it's Jesus, she wants to cling to him, because she wasn't expected a risen Jesus, and now she goes to him and says, yes, Jesus, and he says, hold on, don't cling to me yet, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, and he's going to stay 40 more days. He says, don't do it yet. But go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father. Oh, by the way, and your father? You're in the family. It's our father together. I'm ascending to my God and your God. And then Mary Magdalene went and did what? And? One more time. And? She announced she went and proclaimed to the disciples. Who? Where are they? The 11 guys locked up in a room. They're like, we ain't getting out. You know why they're locked in the room? They're scared. You know why they're scared? They just killed our rabbi. They know we're part of the way. What are they going to do to us? They're scared. She goes to the disciples and said, I have seen five words. I have seen the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen the Lord? Have you truly experienced, tasted and seen the goodness of God? And Mary gets in and says to the 11 disciples, I've seen him. And she told them 
what he, Jesus, had said to her. Now, if we really want to be biblical every single year on Easter, you ready for this? We ought to have a woman preach. Think about that. Who was the very first preacher of the gospel? Mary. You didn't think about that before, did you? Mary preached the gospel. The very first person to preach the good news, because there's no good if good news if a resurrection hasn't happened, by the way. It's only good news because of what we celebrate today. The tomb's empty. There's resurrection. That's the only reason why it's good news. If he's not resurrected, Christmas just means another Jewish boy was born, and all this means nothing. She's the first preacher of the gospel. And who does she go to? Men who are hiding, rightfully so. I've seen him. I've seen him. See, this is the essence of our faith right here. You have seen, and you know the Lord. See, Christianity does not mean knowing about Jesus, but it means knowing Jesus. And that's a big difference. It means it's moved from this head knowledge of knowing about 18 inches to the heart. And it transforms you. It transforms you. See, Jesus would spend 40 more days. He would spend 40 more days with the disciples. What's interesting is he would also tell them, all, read the book of John. John's a great, or, uh, yeah, John's a great book. It's theologically heady. But of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're known as the synoptic gospels. Let me hear you say synoptic. It means they're similar. It means that they record very similar stories of Jesus. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focus on the deeds or the actions of Jesus. John, his gospel, focuses more on the words of Jesus. And so it's theologically rich. And what John does is John records some of the amazing prayer that Jesus does in the upper room with his 12 disciples right before his, uh, his betrayal. And he spends, and in that moment, he tells his disciples, and they don't get it, though. He says, hey, it's better that I go, I gotta go to the Father. Uh, because, listen, the comforter, the counselor is coming to you. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. And he goes, if I don't go back to the Father, you won't get the Spirit. And he says, it's better for you to get the Spirit. It's better for Holy Spirit to be in you than me beside you. He says, I got to go to the Father. And then he goes on, and eventually in Acts chapter 2, you know, after 40 days in Acts 1, all of a sudden Jesus tells him, hey, wait here, because the Spirit, remember when I was praying for you? The Spirit's coming in Acts 1. He's saying, hey, and then all of a sudden it says, he disappeared before their eyes. He ascended to heaven. You ever wonder what it was like if you were a disciple? Be like, we're, all right, we're just talking. Jesus is like, Oop, there he goes. And it says he just ascends to the Father. And then the disciples wait, 120 in the upper room. And what are they doing in the waiting? They're praying. You may be going through a season of waiting. I hope that you're on your knees praying in the season of waiting. Then the Holy Spirit came. And here's the power of Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11 says this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, that's resurrection power. 
the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? He lives in you. Woo-hoo. I got that resurrection power. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life. How? Through his spirit who lives in you. The good news of Easter is that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in you. There is resurrection power in you. What would it look like if we as Christians really began to understand our faith in that? We really go at it and go, and I have the presence of God dwelling within me. The power, resurrection power. What's that song? Did we sing it? Resurrection power runs in my veins too. I believe there's another miracle here in this room. I'm wondering, do you really understand the lyrics you're singing? You know that this power is in you. And it's the Holy Spirit waiting to be awakened inside of you. Say, you need this. You've got things in your life that, man, I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Just let open up and let me come and do what I got to do. You're tired of your addiction? Come on, let me go after that thing. You can't do it on your own. I live in you. Just open the door. Let me go, please. I'm going to finally beat that thing. You're sick and so sick of your wife and your husband and you can't forgive them. Listen, I know it hurts and I hurts badly. Let me awaken inside of you because I'll give you power to love. I'll give you the power to forgive. I'll give you the power. Just awaken inside of you. I'm here. Just open the door. Crack it and see what I can't do. Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader and he's trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing and how do, how, do, how do I be in the kingdom of God? And Jesus finally responds to this guy in John 3, 3, and he says this. Jesus replied, I tell you, unless someone is born again, unless someone is born again, listen, he can't see the kingdom of God. You gotta be born again. And in order for something to be born, there must not be any life currently existing and then something's birthed out of nothing. You have to die to yourself and your flesh nature and be born again through Jesus Christ. You have to be born again. And Romans 6.11, right? if you don't know the book of Romans, get to know the book of Romans. It's a beautiful book. It brings power. Romans 11, 6.11 says, so you two consider yourselves What are those three words? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is is Paul writing to the house churches of Rome? What is he saying here? You are dead to sin and alive to God. What does not have birth in you anymore? Sin. Sin. You are dead to sin. Oh, I can't beat that sin. Yes, you can. If you don't think you can, then the Bible's incorrect and it's not without error. Because the resurrection power lives in you. You don't have to be a sinner. We have the saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace, right? Which is true. You were a sinner saved by grace. You know what you aren't anymore? Stop calling yourself a sinner. You're a child of God. That is biblical. That is in the Bible where it says, when you come into salvation, God now declares you a child of his. Stop calling yourself a sinner. Start calling yourself a child of God. 
Stop defining by things of what you think you've done in the past because God called you to something greater. You are now a child of his. Yes, you were. When Paul says this, it is a past tense. Sinner, saved by grace. But guess what you are now? Saved, you're a new creation. You're now a saint who sins here and there. Hopefully sins less than what you once were. But you are. Are you dead to your sin? Or does your sin still breathe life? Thanks for listening to this message from Radiant Life Church. To get to know us better, check out the Radiant Life. Church. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.